You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast with Amy Green Smith, episode 483. You can find information on anything referenced in this week's episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP483. Oh, well, hey there. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing, or your partner asks what's bothering you, and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank God. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I've been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy-to-implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth. Yes! Hey, hey, pod people. Amy here. We are furthering our very small mini-series around addiction and recovery this week, and I am about to give a little ring-a-ding to Annie Grace, who is probably one of the most prolific and formidable voices right now in the alcohol-free movement, and a lot of that comes from the the fact that she is approaching addiction through a completely revolutionary lens. And up until relatively recently, there has really been one primary focus for sobriety. And that has been either through AA or if it's other types of substances, NA, uh, narcotics anonymous. So there have been a lot of a lot a lots of evidence to support that so, that those formats could use a bit of revamping or that folks could use additional options for sobriety which is really where where Annie came in and she's also talked a lot about her specific experience with sobriety and that she wanted to not want alcohol. That was more of the goal of I want to get to a point where I just don't want it as opposed to feeling like you are battling something that you do want every single day and fighting with that urge and how difficult that is for so many folks. So she is really just an incredible force, I think. And I mentioned this last week, and I think it's worth repeating. I do still drink. I am not alcohol-free. I also do enjoy marijuana as well. (laughs) So I'm not having these conversations under the guise that I am alcohol-free or that I don't enjoy substances. I do, and I think it's incredibly important to have solid understanding about what's happening to your body, what you are putting in it, being really clear. And and I also am a huge proponent for fighting against social norms that are actually really detrimental that we've bought into for centuries, like the patriarchy, like having 
a hierarchy to gender, right? I think there are things like that that we take for granted because they are so embedded in the fabric of our society, and alcohol consumption is one of them. And I remember reading in one of Annie's books, she had talked about just how incredibly poisonous and damaging alcohol consumption is on a many different levels and how how we wouldn't bat an eyelash if we saw a billboard or an advertisement that was saying like, hey, enjoy this alcohol over the weekend or start your weekend off right. But can you imagine if we had just like heroin up there (laughs) or like do a line of Coke or grab yourself some crystal meth, you know, when when we're talking about substances that that really are unbelievably damaging. And so her work, I think, has been incredible in the way that it dismantles a lot of the social buy-in that we have for alcohol. Things like, it just helps me relax. I'm so much more enjoyable. I can re- I can be more sociable and gregarious and fun. And uh, it's not affecting me. Like all of these, it helps me sleep. She basically takes all of these social concepts that we've bought into and she dismantles them one by one by one. And it was really pretty enlightening to, to come across her work and then to view not just alcohol differently, but how alcohol is promoted to us differently. And those are the things that I want to shake up and I want to have conversations around. So yeah, I think you'll you'll know too when you listen to what she has to say that there's no shame. She wants to remove that element from it. So no matter where you're at on the spectrum of drink, don't drink, believe in recovery, don't believe, you know, believe in AA, don't believe in AA, are atheist, are not, you know, like no matter where you fall, This is truly just about digging deeper and being honest with yourself. And that's something that I'm always going to be a proponent about. So I'm going to give her a dial. And before I do, I want to give you a little background on her. So she is the author of This Naked Mind, and that was her very first book, I believe, around controlling alcohol, finding freedom, freedom and discovering happiness and change your life. And then she's also written another book called The Alcohol Experiment. And this is also available as a free challenge. And you can find out more about that in the show notes where you can actually go through her alcohol experiment. And it is, she'll talk about it a little bit more when I give her a call, I'm sure. But just a really great way to be curious about your relationship with alcohol without feeling like you have to don some sort of label, like I'm an alcoholic or or something like that. So she has a master's of science in marketing, which really drove her getting involved in in a corporate arena. And so she was the youngest vice president in a multinational company by the age of 26. And that is when she says her drinking career began in earnest. And then at 35, in a global C-level marketing role, she was responsible for marketing in 28 countries. And she was drinking almost two bottles of wine every single night. So she knew that something needed to change, but she did not want to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma. So she began her journey to 
try to gain control of alcohol without extreme pain. And for her, that process resulted in just simply no longer wanting to drink. What if that was our goal? Not white knuckling it, but just could I get to a place where I just don't want that? And so the decision is significantly easier. So let me give her a call and we'll dig into this. But before I do, I wanted to mention that we might have one more episode that is in the the addiction and recovery space. I'm not sure yet, but if we do not, we're going to dive headfirst into a brand new series about spirituality. We're going to be talking to some folks who are able to channel, uh, some mediums, some psychics. I think it's going to be a really exciting new series, so stay tuned for that. And if you did not catch last week, last week was our first episode in the Addiction and Recovery series. I spoke with Laura Cathcart-Robbins, where she very candidly and openly shares her journey with a very detrimental addiction to Ambien as well as alcohol and what that looked like for her to live a life of sobriety. And so I'm hoping that you catch that as well. Her book Stash is out and it's incredible. I could not put it down. So lots of fantastic women with beautiful works of art in written form available for you. Please check out the show notes for today. We'll be sure to link to Annie's alcohol experiment. You can check out her other books as well. All right, let's give her a ring, see if I can catch her. Hello. Annie. Hey, it's Amy. How are you? Hi, Amy. Good. How are you? I'm good. Hey, listen. So I'm hanging out over here with the pod people and we've been talking about addiction and recovery and all sorts of stuff related to that. And I thought I've got to, I've got to give Annie a call because obviously you've written the book on it a few times. And so do you have a little bit of time to chat with us? Yeah, I just got done shoveling all the tons of snow off my driveway. So I, I'm I'm good for now. Oh my gosh. How many inches did you get? About seven. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in an area in in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we just kind of get missed by all of the severe weather. So enough for it to be romantic, but not inconvenient. So for those of those listening who maybe aren't super familiar with you or your story, can you give a little bit of a background of your relationship and sort of your journey with alcohol? I didn't become a big drinker actually until my 20s when I was living in New York City. And I was told that going out to the bar was kind of like the golf course. It was where all the deals were done. And if I was serious about my career, I would get kind of serious about drinking. And so I was like, all right, let's make a plan. And so I'd go out and I would actually you know, make a plan and have a pint of water for every glass of wine I drank. I intentionally chose red wine because it was supposed to be the healthiest and the most locale. And, you know, I thought I was all in control. If you would have asked me at that point in time, I would have told you that, like, I didn't even think alcohol was addictive unless you were an alcoholic. And so I thought, you know, all things good, all things go. Time passed and what was drinking at work became drinking at home, became drinking for just about every reason. Is it a Tuesday? Is you know something good on Netflix? It was every every reason in the book. Fast forward about a decade. I had two little boys. I was traveling all around the world for this job that I had. I was global head of marketing for the largest foreign currency exchange company in the world. And I was drinking over two bottles of wine a night. And I really felt like my options were 
sobriety, which sounded terrible to me. It it really did sound like missing out on life, not having fun, being outside of everything, having to deprive myself of social circumstances and or keep drinking and keep dealing with the mounting consequences of drinking. I would take breaks and I I kid you not, I would think about alcohol more when I wasn't drinking it than when I was. It was so weird because when I wasn't drinking it, I was thinking about when I could drink it again and feeling super deprived and like I was missing out. And then when I was drinking it, that was all fine. But then I was feeling hungover and wondering what I said or did the night before. So I really felt stuck. The options available felt just pretty miserable, like the willpower. And I was like, if if drink, if drink not drinking sucks this bad, then I'm just going to keep drinking. And I was coming home from the UK one day um, and I'd been asking these questions that I think most people ask when they're over drinking, which is what's wrong with me? Uh, am I an alcoholic? What's my problem? And I had a different question kind of pop into my brain, which was why? Why did I used to be able to take it or leave it? And why is it now some you know, something that feels indispensable in my life. And so I decided to stop trying to stop drinking. I decided that I was going to totally let myself off the hook. I was going to give myself a year, no shame, no blame, drink as much as I want, just become really mindful about it and, and figure out why. And so I made a list of every single reason I drank. It was long. And over the next year, very methodically, I started going through that list and you know, looking up, we live in this great day and age where any old person off the street can download a scientific study for 50 bucks, 100 bucks. And I would just start looking up, okay, does it really relax you? Does it really help me sleep better? Does it really loosen you up for sex? Does it really this? Does it really that? And over the process of the next year, both through my own experience of being like, huh, okay, I'm drunk. How does it feel? Getting really curious, literally looking at my life like it was an experiment I came to this realization that I just didn't want to drink anymore. So I, I walked out of my office. I told my husband, I was like, I think I'm done drinking. So if you want to get drunk with me again, tonight's the night because I'm done after this. And he was like, what? Didn't believe me. But we split a bottle of wine. And then I did I did do an alcohol experiment about four months after that, where I got drunk in front of a camera. But mm-hmm. other than that, I haven't had a drink in over eight years now. And I have seen that footage. So I know that it exists. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone through your alcohol experiment and I've I also I believe in This Naked Mind that book isn't that where you chronicle these various myths that we've kind of bought into of it makes me more socially acceptable and fun and gregarious hello introverts out there who have to lube up to go in social situations is that is that am I correct in that that This Naked Mind talks about that Yeah, absolutely. So the process for that was basically like I had all this research and I'd been writing it down in on my computer, uh, on flights all over the world, you know, researching, just really documenting what I was learning, trying to make sense of it for myself. And as soon as I stopped drinking, I was like, gosh, other people need to know this. I had no, no intention of leaving my job. I had a great corporate career, but I put this just really (laughs) typo ridden PDF of all of this information out online. And 20,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. And I just started getting emails. I put my email address in there. I started getting emails from all over the world of, oh my gosh, this helped me when nothing else did. And actually somebody reached out and he's like, you should you should publish this as a book. And so I looked into it and I wrote him back. I was like, well, I don't have a platform. You basically can't do that. Like I don't have an agent. And he's like, no, you can self-publish on Amazon. 
And so I was like, really? So I started looking into that and it took me about a year to get all my ducks in a row of actually writing some narrative to all the research and, you know, going through the editing process. But about a year later, I published, self-published This Naked Mind, which was the same thing at the very beginning of the book. It says, look, don't, don't try to stop drinking. Stop, stop trying to stop drinking. Just let's get you some new information and then let's make a decision. I remember the first few days it sold 10 copies and I was like, oh my gosh, who are these 10 people? This is so weird, you know, 10 strangers. And by um, December 31st of that year, it sold 100 copies, which blew me away. I remember skiing, looking at like the Amazon report and be like, what? Who are these 100 people? Anyway, it went on and it's now, you know, my books have sold over a million copies and become traditionally published. And I think it's just, you know, because it works. It, it really changing your mindset, changing your beliefs before you try to change your behavior. Um, there's something really magical in that approach. I absolutely agree. And there have been numerous issues that I have found with like the AA community and identifying as an alcoholic. And I know you have a really similar stance. But one of the things that we're kind of talking about here that we discuss a lot on the show is the difference between the conscious faculty of the mind and the subconscious faculty of the mind and how so often we are trying to willpower our way through things, which is housed in the conscious faculty of the mind. It fatigues the same way a muscle does. That's why you can wake up really early, you know, early in the morning. And you're like, I'm not drinking today. Fuck yeah. And you're all pumped. And then by the end of the day, fatigue sets in and you're like, just one glass of wine's not a bad idea, right? And I think there's a problem systemically in our culture, also in medicine, where we're just looking at symptoms instead of looking at causation. And I think that's one of the most important things that you're dis dissecting here is what are the messages that I've received around drinking? What is it that's fueling me to want to drink? And how can I start making some changes that aren't necessarily lodged into a binary of, am I an alcoholic or am I not? And I know you've ruffled some feathers with this. So fuck yeah, let's dive into it. So talk to me about the claim of I am an addict versus your stance of, yeah, guess what? No one is. And there's some new nomenclature that we need to learn. Tell us about it. First of all, let's just start with this idea that in the in the last few years, some really groundbreaking research has come out about behavior change. Mm -hmm. And it's it's come from Stanford University and it's come from Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, Dr. BJ Fogg. And it's basically saying that they have debunked this idea that if you just do the thing for a certain number of days, that the thing will stick. They're like, that's not that's not causal. That's correlated, maybe, but it's not causal. The thing that they've identified as causal in behavior change is how you feel toward the behavior change. So if you feel like diseased, like you are in this forever, like how I felt about getting sober before I did this work, right? I felt like, or how I felt about maybe being an alcoholic, terror, uh, you know, just so much fear, so much um, shame, so much feeling as if I was the problem, so much self-loathing, so much blame. And if they're saying very definitively now that the, the link between lasting behavior change and, you know, is emotion and positive emotion toward that behavior change specifically, 
then we're having the wrong conversation. We're having a conversation where somebody has to declare themselves powerless, identify as an alcoholic, which is, you know, said a lifelong disease for which there is no cure, where your addiction is getting stronger in the parking lot. They need to um, basically admit that they're not normal in the big book of AA. It, it, literally says like we have realized that we are not normal we are abnormal drinkers and if you think of it even from a child's perspective when a child it has that feeling oh maybe i'm not normal i mean it's a visceral reaction to am i going to be part of this tribe am i going to survive am i going to be able to you know be thrive if i'm kind of left out of the whole and so we're we're having this conversation, this life or death conversation with the wrong premise, right? The premise that somehow if we just admit all of this terrible stuff, then that fear and that pain will keep us not drinking. But statistically and scientifically, that's just not true. I mean, we collectively, our rate of recidiv, like the how many people go back to drinking or drugs, even after rehab is astounding. I was talking to someone who does efficacy for rehab centers. He says 96% of people are drinking by the time they hit the mailbox on their way out the door. And so we're, we're having this conversation that is so toxic because it's so laden with blame and shame and labels when the science is just crystal clear. The thing that affects a long-term behavior change is the positive emotion you feel in relation to that behavior change. Right. Right. And this is also one of the reasons why I think we need to, if if all of my lovely liberal co-parts out there are going, I believe in science, then we also need to recognize that science evolves. And the minute we get new information, then we have to kind of course correct. So I have a couple of situations in my own life that I would love to kind of get your take on. Because I have always felt very similarly to you, but I also would not put myself in a category where I felt like I had problem drinking or, you know, that I would identify as an alcoholic. But some people in my life have. And I have a family member who went to a, a program and I remember sitting there and she was doing amends and talking to us about stuff. And and I was like, okay, great. You've treated the symptom, but why the fuck did you drink to begin with? Because there were certain things emotionally that you are trying to escape the blame, the shame, and it becomes cyclical. And so I I got very involved in your work a handful of years ago and was reading through your books. And I found it very enlightening as like, oh shit, here's a new perspective around um, something that has been very punitive in the past, right? Like you're bad. And as someone with a lots of religious trauma, I don't need more messages of that, that I'm broken. <laughs> so I was discussing this with a, a colleague and friend of mine who, who does identify as sober and talking to her through a personal development lens. I went, okay, if somebody doesn't want to be a perfectionist, if they don't want to be a people pleaser, if they don't want to talk shit to themselves, I tell them to stop identifying that way. Stop saying, I'm just a people pleaser or I'm such a perfectionist if it's behavior that you want to change. So why would we walk into situations that are riddled with shame and guilt and keep applying that mantle, right? Like, why would we keep saying I'm an addict? And what she has posed is that it's very dangerous for her not to or to think that she's okay because then she gives herself too much space 
And one of the things that you had mentioned in one of your books, I believe you use a metaphor of if you're climbing a mountain and you get 80% to the top and you fall down a little bit, you don't go all the way down to the fucking bottom and start all over again, which is sort of how traditional AA sobriety is looked at versus saying like, oh, I'm doing pretty well at like 95% success rate or 80% success rate. And I remember bringing that up to my brother who is uh, a smoker, both uh, cigarettes and marijuana. And I know that that that's a new avenue for you with nicotine. And I remember approaching him about it and, and sharing with him that anecdote. And it was very similar to the colleague of mine who said, if I give myself that leeway, I start going 60% sober isn't bad. 50% nicotine free isn't so bad. 40%. Oh, well, I'm st- still better than 0%. And so I'm really curious what, what your thoughts are on that and or what the tools are to work with that. So much to unpack here. So this is this is awesome. This is such a great, great thing to dive into and uh, will for sure ruffle some feathers, which is great. So here's here the thing. Like, I had the same conversation with somebody in the early days and it was a friend of mine. And, you know, she was very much, you know, I was very anti this alcoholic label. And she took me aside and she said, Annie, you don't understand. Like some people really need that label. And I was like, okay, like explain this to me. Like I'm open. I want to understand this. And she said, what happens is that they feel that if they are an alcoholic, they can never again drink in safety. And that fear present prevents them from ever drinking again. And if there is a opening or an avenue for them to drink again, based on their past experience, that is going to be a multi-day bender where probably the next time they drink could result in death. And so I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my gosh, like, yes, like that for sure sounds like you should use that term alcoholic if if that is what's working for you, right? And I would never tell anybody that there's one way to do things or one way is the right way or anything like that. But I also think that, yes, fine, do what works for you. And let's just explore this concept a little bit more and a little bit deeper because ultimately... The reality is that the reason in most cases that somebody goes on a multi-day bender when they have one drink is not necessarily in most cases because of the physical dependence on alcohol that it puts you right into that. Now with drugs, it is a little bit different, but in a lot of cases, it is because of the shame that they feel. And there's a scientific premise called the what the hell effect. Mm-hmm. It's a funny name for it, but it basically means that if you've done one thing, if you had one Oreo and you were trying to be on a really strict diet, what the hell, I'm going to eat the whole bag. If you had one drink, what the hell? The what the hell effect only comes into play when we feel incredible shame about our behavior, right? And so it is really interesting to me to just question, not to say that anybody should, you know, ditch the label if they, if they feel strongly that that label is what's keeping them, you know, kosher and sober and alive. But let's just question how much of the fear and how much of, of that behavior could come from the shame and the regret that they feel and the what the hell effect. Because what happens in my communities, and in my programs is we actually call drinking again a data point. And there's no shame in it. It's just data. You drink again. How did you feel about it? 
Was it good? Was it not good? Because there is a reason that we stopped drinking in the first place, right? There's a reason. It's not, it's not some uh, you know, the thing that like, oh, but I miss it so much. And 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 I think unfortunately, in a lot of traditional recovery, like I have a friend who's been sober 11 years in AA, and in her mindset, she is very much like, I still really miss it. I wish I could do it. I wish I could be normal, but I know that I can't because if I do, I might die. So, okay, I can... I can't pretend to understand your experience at all. And I think that that, you know, whatever works for somebody works. But also, if we're going through life really, truly missing something and wanting it, it does make it harder not to do the thing that we're really missing and wanting. And so it's going to sound a little bit radical, but I really, really believe that we stopped for a reason. We started questioning it for a reason. Admittedly, the further away we get from the pain of drinking, the more that reason diminishes to some degree. But at the end of the day, that like we can trust ourselves. Like I believe that if the shame and the blame wasn't there, and I could be wrong, but I think if the shame and the blame wasn't there, and this is what I've seen with thousands and thousands of people inside my programs. And by the way, these aren't just people who are kind of occasional drinkers. I have people who have been in rehab a dozen times, right? Mm-hmm. People who have been like very, very serious drinkers that when they remove the shame and the blame, they have a beer, they have a, a moment, a data point, And then instantly they're like, oh yeah, I didn't want to do this. And they come back into the community, they reconnect, they don't disconnect because they have to admit their failure, right? They reconnect and it doesn't go any further than that. And then they come to a point where they have realized, I am trustworthy with myself, not because of some label or some rules or some other people's expectations. I am trustworthy of myself because if I really let myself make the decision, do I want this or not? And I I let that play out because guess what? Yes, I want it. Okay, great. Then I go get drunk and then I'm like, oh, nope, I really didn't want it. Yes, I want it. And then I go get drunk. Oh, nope, I really didn't want it. But if I take the shame and blame out of that equation, like we stopped for a reason, like people are trustworthy with their own lives. The best example I can give for this is a few years ago, I was invited to be on Red Table Talk, which is at Will Smith's house. It's the show that Jada Pickett Smith hosts. And I was on there and I, I was recording the same day that Kelly Osborne was recording. So I was right back in the green room. I was watching you know, her on the screens. I could also see her out of the corner of my eye. And I'm watching this interview with Jada and Gammy and Willow and Kelly Osborne. And they are talking to Kelly Osborne about this fact that she had just relapsed during COVID. And, you know, it took her a while to kind of admit it to her group and get back under control, but she got it back under control. And she was asked, well, do you have a support system now? And she said, well, no, because 90% of my women's group also relapsed. And so the group disbanded. And it made me physically to think the blame and shame how right. much of that fear of one drink is because we have made this thing, this impossible thing. There's nowhere I have been trying to think of this. And if you can think of something, there's nowhere else where a hundred percent is success and 99.9% is failure. Nowhere else. And so diet, diet diets, <laughs> even in a diet, well, maybe we can, yeah, maybe you can Culturally. say that even in a diet, 
you know, we're like, okay, well, I don't, I don't count the days from the last time I ate a French fry, right? Like right, I'm not, right, right. I'm not sitting there. And if I eat a French fry, I'm like, okay, you know, I can get back on track. Like we do have a, a, a lot of that. What the hell effect in a diet? I'll, I'll for sure give you that. But if you look at like baseball players, really good baseball players, their batting average is 33%. They fail 66% of the time. Mm-hmm. Right. But in this conversation, we're saying if you fail one time, right, you have to start from the ground up. Okay. So Dak Shepard uh, very famously mm-hmm. recently relapsed and he has a new podcast out and it's called day seven. It's, it's relatively recent. He had 16 years of sobriety according to, you know, AA where he was going and he kept his kind of dabbling back into drugs, a secret for almost eight years that he was kind of on a slippery slope with some painkillers for eight years, because his biggest fear in his mind was that if I have to go back to day one, that pain and that drama and that intensity is going to be so much regret that I'm going to instantly just being right back where I was drinking and doing cocaine every single day. And so not only did the fear of having to go back to day one prevent him from asking for help with something he identified as a slippery slope for eight years. Right. Now that he did go back, he was embraced and welcomed. And everybody said, great job, you know, because he was very humble about it. And so he came with it. And so, you know, we have this kind of humility that's offered when we're repentant mm-hmm. in these in these frameworks, right? And so he he came back and now he's on day seven in this podcast. They have discounted the fact that for 16 years, this man didn't drink alcohol and now he's on day seven. Right. And and so I'm like, yeah, the pressure there (laughs) is so intense that the result and the reason people feel so afraid is because when they see somebody drink again, it does, it results in a multi-day bender or a really bad situation or even in death. And so they're like, I can't, I literally can't, because if I did, that's, what's going to happen to me too. But I am just curious and just posing the question, how much of that behavior of the really dangerous behavior when it comes to having a drink is because of the alcohol, which is, by the way, out of your system completely by that point in time, or is because of the shame and blame and the guilt and the the failure of having to throw away 16 years? And that, you know, I think that's a really, really important question in this whole conversation. I remember this one particular family member who I was sharing with you earlier, that was the exact case. It was getting clean and then it was a relapse. And we always knew there was a relapse because they would just disappear. They were just gone. And what is that? That is fucking shame. That is hiding out. That is, I can't be seen. I can't have you look at me with such disgust and disappointment. Before we continue, I wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and you know I'm a huge fan of therapy. I like to say, if you don't think that you need therapy, then you probably need therapy. Because listen, without a healthy mind, being really, truly happy and at peace can really be a challenge. But the good news is that therapy really does work. So whatever you need help with, it is time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better. 
okay? Because you deserve to be happy. Here's the deal. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't even have to be on camera if you don't want to. Hello, introverts. I see you out there. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. They have over 20,000 therapists in their network, which gives you way, way more options than your immediate geographical area. And it's also available for clients worldwide. Much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in less than 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. In fact, a member of my family just started and totally loves it. It is always a good time to invest in yourself because you deserve it. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and the Bold Face Truth podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash bold truth. That's betterhelp.com slash bold truth or enter the code bold truth at checkout again to save 10% off your very first month. So before we continue on, I wanted to ask a quick favor from you. Do you ever listen to the pod, and I think this might happen for you, where you think, damn, I really wish so-and-so could hear this. Maybe it's your coworker who could actually use a lesson or two on boundaries, or maybe it is a women's group that you're a part of where everyone is super on board for speaking up for themselves, but nobody really knows what that really sounds like. Okay, where here's where you come in. I have three battle-tested and badass keynote speeches that are ready to be delivered to your company, organization, group, association. So if you, your community, or anyone you know could benefit from me rocking the mic, like who can use some new tools, right? Please send them over to amygreensmith.com slash speaking where you or they can message me directly about specific needs for the audience. Shocker, the three keynotes are focused around speaking up, contending with fear, and accessing enoughness. And all three of them can be delivered either in person or virtually, and of course can be completely customized for specific audience needs. So again, simply send them to amygreensmith.com dot com slash speaking where they can get in touch with me because listen it is time that women everywhere have the tools necessary to use their voice take up space and advocate for their wants needs and opinions like yesterday and if you end up orchestrating an opportunity for me to speak with your group you will officially get unlimited squeezes from me <laughs> And I'm sure you're all in now. And be sure to let them know that I can always temper my colorful language if needed. And thank you. All right, let's get back to the show. I think this is a really, really great topic that you infuse into your work, which is a lot around emotional intelligence. And I would really love to talk about this because when you were talking about, I I just want to talk about sort of the arc of emotional intelligence. Uh, acuity and sharpness of what was happening for you emotionally or mentally when you were in that space of drinking two bottles a night? First of all, was there emotional pain that you could name? And then second of all, what story did you tell yourself about the two bottles being okay enough that you could repeat that over and over? 
So I think, and I guess back to your your other question about like how the brain plays these insane tricks on you. And in addiction, you know, people really define like Matthew Perry was talking recently about kind of defining the disease as like, it is a disease in his words, and it plays these tricks on you to get you to find any excuse to do the thing again, right? And so it's bizarre because what was happening for me was this almost uh, rift in inside myself where I was literally two different people living inside the same human. So there was one person who was waking up at three in the morning filled with shame and regret and absolute terror because I would look at how much I was drinking and be like, no human being my size can drink this much over a long period of time and not really screw up their health, right? I knew the statistics about alcohol and cancer by that time, because that's what you do when you start to get scared of your own drinking. You start to look up these scary statistics because you think if I can just scare myself enough, if I can just show myself how far I've fallen, then I'm going to be able to make a change here. Now that wasn't working for me because what would happen is I'd know these statistics. So I'd wake up, there's Annie version one, waking up at three in the morning, promising herself she's not going to do it again, berating herself, wondering like, oh, oh my gosh, like, how can you do this to yourself, to your family? Don't you care about anything? Feeling like she's not even worthy to be alive. And then there was Annie who would wake up the next day and go around her work and at five o'clock just be like, oh yeah, no big deal. Like, I'll just have one or two. Mm-hmm. And and it there wasn't crossover. <laughs> they weren't talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. So there, there, there wasn't like this moment of right before I poured the drink at 5 p.m., like I was like totally dissociated from the person who was really saying, hello, wake up. This is a problem. This is a problem, you know? And, and I, I mean, I've, I've heard people describe like affairs like that, like there wasn't crossover and it's so weird. So I fully get and understand the fact that our brains can do crazy stuff to kind of protect the substance and protect the fact that we feel like we need it. But what was underneath my feeling of needing it was beliefs that I literally believed with all of, of, you know, everything that I knew consciously, I believed that I needed alcohol, like I needed water or like I needed air. And that's how addiction works in the brain. It confuses the brain to the point because of a dopamine response to the fact that the brain will believe that you need that substance as much as you need air Mm -hmm. and and that it's necessary for your survival. So to not do it feels completely out of the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. And so in order to make it okay you create almost these two different identities inside yourself. One that wants to get help and get better. And one that wants to just like, you know, protect this thing that, that your brain has come to believe is keeping it alive. I mean, it's a coping mechanism. And so I think that the answer to that is we're not, we're not rats. We're not caught in this maze. We don't have to like just succumb to it. We have this beautiful thing called our brain where we can understand those mechanisms of addiction. We can understand oh, this is my mind playing tricks on me. This is my mind trying to get me to do the thing. But what we have to do is we have to integrate those two versions of ourself. And I think what's really important is that when we fear that other person, right? Like, so if you're talking back to your friend, just as an example, and I hope this example is going to make sense. I'm not, I'm not sure it is in its entirety, but hopefully it will. But if you're, if you're going back to someone who says, 
okay, I can't drink again because I will just go on this bender. I will literally kill myself if I have another drink. There's still two people. There's still the person who they've suppressed, who is desperate for a drink because they believe that alcohol is the end all be all. There's no physical addiction anymore at that point because they're so far away from the drug. Like it's, it's left the system, right? Now there can be patterned responses in the brain that trigger for sure. But like, there's just, they're, they're so afraid of that other person that they're keeping that other person under lock and key. Mm-hmm. And then they're living into that person who's like, no more. I need to do these things. I need to go to these meetings. Right. But it's still two different people inside right. the same group. And so you're basically walking uh, cognitive dissonance at that point. Right. You still yeah. have it. Like my friend who's been sober 11 years, she still has someone living in her brain who is desperate for a drink. Right. And she's just not trying to give that person airtime. Right. And so what I'm suggesting is like, if you really go through the process of learning everything there is to learn about alcohol, learning everything there is to learn about the brain and the chemicals around addiction, learning how the trap works, because you're not a mouse, you can walk around the trap, but you have to integrate so that no part of you wants it anymore. Right. And and that takes work and that takes a process. Like we have to, because it's not just conscious, it's subconscious, just like you said. You know, we'll have an experience where we can be in a in a situation where maybe we drank or did drugs in that situation. And just the sensory input, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're smelling, can trigger a response in us seven seconds before your brain is even consciously aware of it. So all of a sudden we're in this very triggered situation. We don't understand it, but here's the thing. You can learn that that's happening to you. You can learn, Oh, when I drive by that liquor store and I don't turn in my physical reaction, isn't because there's some monster inside of me doing push-ups in the parking lot, getting stronger, and it's going to overcome me. And I can't understand it. You can learn, know what's happening is a chemical reaction in my brain because I have neurons that have wired together based on my past behavior. And I can sit with and lean into this craving and experience it. And I can let my prefrontal cortex override it by integrating that part of myself. And so I actually suggest when people have cravings, I say, we we tend to say, I'm not going to put myself in any situations where I'm going to have a craving. I'm not going to go out to the bar if I have a craving. I can't hang out with certain people, right? I'm saying, no, no, no. Like lean into that experience that, allow that, integrate that, because then all of you gets to decide I don't want it. And that's where real freedom is. This is such a great conversation to have. And I, this is very much in parallel to what I talk about all the time with students and clients around being with their emotions, because so frequently when we're experiencing any type of discomfort, whether it's physical or emotional, we go, okay, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And what do we usually do? We turn to some sort of vice or something that allows us to disconnect emotionally or numb out. When in reality, we are so much more resilient and we will move beyond that trigger or that craving or that emotional blip on the radar if we just sit with it. And But we're not taught that. We're not taught how to navigate discomfort. We're taught how to smooth it over, run over it. Um, And I personally subscribe to the belief that when we are in emotional pain, when we have emotional feelings that are uncomfortable, we try to uh, fix them with physical feelings. So because the the term feeling 
can be physical or emotional. And we we kind of collapse those two, I think, a lot. And so no wonder if there's an emotion of stress or an emotion of overwhelm, we think, okay, let me do something physical, like work out, have sex, do drugs, have a drink, have a cake, have it, you know, we physically, if I can feel different, then maybe this emotional turmoil will go away. So I'm curious for you what your emotional dance has looked like, because one of the things that you're talking about here that I think is inescapable is genuinely doing the work. And what we mean when we in this space, that when we say do the work, it is really nurturing a relationship with yourself, understanding all of the various components and parts of who you are. So what has that looked like for you? Like, what does a dance with shame and guilt look like now? Such a good question. And it's never ending work because, and, and sometimes you can actually feel like you're going backward, but I think it's actually a spiral sort of upward, but you come back to these really intense points or you peel the onion and there can be a, a level or a layer of of sort of beliefs that you have about yourself that are not even conscious or on your radar that you know, you just couldn't access before because the stuff above that was more acute. And so you kind of had to handle that first. And then you're like, oh, I'm enmeshed in this. Like I've been in my life personally recently in this time of like a lot of emotional turmoil. And, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, I don't drink anymore and I, I do this work, so I should be so happy. Well, no, I've just actually like kind of peeled back a layer of the onion and found a part of myself that really needs a lot of healing that wasn't even accessible to me because all the other stuff above it was so acute. Right. Right. And so it is this kind of forever, forever journey. And I think for me, you know, very practically, and what I teach is just this idea of energy snags. And it's any, any moment in any day when you feel like you have, you have just a dip in your feelings, in, in what's going on, whether it's a craving, whether it's just feeling just off, whether it's very, very poignant and you feel very upset about something, um, it's writing down that situation and then coming back to it. And ruthlessly, I mean, I would literally carry a notebook around me for with me and I still do to this day. And and I have a note on my phone <laughs> where it just is, I call it ES, energy snags. And it's ruthlessly looking for those places because those places to me are indicators that there is something on a subconscious level that really needs attention. And it's usually, like I said, like for instance, this morning I was listening to a podcast and I had this just kind of pit in my stomach feeling and I wrote it down and went to my journal later. And I realized like, wow, this is really coming up for me in an area where I just have a lot of wounds about financial scarcity. And so when I'm listening to this situation, I feel this sense of comparison and wouldn't it be nice? And I wish I was in that situation. And like a lot of stuff kind of comes up. And when you look at it, you can look at it. And and the the whole game, in my opinion, is to look for the clues, which are those emotions. Addiction obviously is a massive clue, right? So is the behaviors that you don't like yourself for doing. Anger is a massive clue. There's something underneath that. Yes. Anywhere you're numbing is a massive clue. And then the clues get like, it's almost like, yeah, they're, they're neon signs. And then you start to do the work and then they're kind of like, you know, there may be street signs and then you start to do the work and then they're kind of whispers, right? Like just little points, but you're looking for these clues 
of where I feel really uncomfortable, but you can't put words to it. It's not uncomfortable like, oh no, I just got cut off in traffic. I'm really uncomfortable because that guy's an asshole, right? That's not it. It's, it's I feel uncomfortable. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And then you write it down and all you're trying to do is surface and get quiet and ask why. Mm-hmm. What is it about this that hurt me? What is it about this that triggered me? It's looking into the trigger, right? Because with alcohol... I'm such a firm believer that like the only reason you desire something is because you think it provides a benefit. Right. And if you can go through every single trigger and be like, okay, well, I was triggered at that social event. And instead of just drinking, um, or maybe you do just drink, like, you know, but either way, whether you drink or you don't drink, you're coming back to, okay, well, why? Mm-hmm. And you're not running away from it. You're not trying to distance from it. You're not trying to like, really dissociate from it, which is what we are taught to do. You're saying, well, why? And then all of a sudden you're surfacing, oh, okay, well, I have, you know, a lot of anxiety around socializing. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Well, where did that come from? And you're just kind of digging in and doing this work and you're solving the things that all these little clues and all these little symptoms are by, by really bringing them to your conscious awareness as an adult human being and saying, okay, this actually is something that I'm not going to let run my life because I mean, I mean, this is just like, uh, you know, therapy cliche, but we all have six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds running our whole lives, like because of stuff that has happened that we're not surfacing and we're not looking at sort of one by one. And it doesn't have to be this huge multi-year talk therapy thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's just about getting really quiet with yourself. And I actually teach a technique called the ACT technique. And it's like mm-hmm. awareness is the first step. What is it? What happened? Then clarity, like how does it make me feel? What's going on? Where did it come from? Right? How does it make me behave? And then you try to come up with a, a different, a different belief, a different thing that you want to instill that you can believe. And I think that's where a lot of a lot of the work does get it wrong is we, we try to come up with this. Okay. Well, I'm going to think this positive thing. If I don't feel successful, I'm going to think, Oh, I'm a success. And I'm going to, you know, write it on my mirror and I'm going to post it in my car. And I'm going to say it to myself a hundred times a day. And I'm going to fall asleep listening to a voice memo of myself saying it. But if you, if you don't believe that on a subconscious level, Dr. Caroline Leaf, she's a neuroscientist out of South Africa. She says, you're just creating neurotoxicity in the brain. And the reality is that's that's very true like positive thinking if you don't believe it so you have to come up with something that i that you believe like you know i might not be successful yet or i'm certainly not as successful as so and so but i'm learning how to be successful i'm working on it the fact that success is in my awareness means that i have a chance at success and then you kind of i call it ladder like you go up the ladder one by one and yeah. so just about Every single time, every single place where you're triggered by alcohol or you're triggered by life, you're just like looking at it and really trying to understand it. Because if you bring that subconscious, those those programs that are running your life into your conscious awareness, that's where you have the ability. That's where they become like Play-Doh and you can actually change them and shape them. Well, I think one of the things that you talk about a lot is is curiosity. And I think that really lends itself to what we're discussing here. Because so often our culture is one of like, what's the fix? What's the remedy? How can I immediately shift and change my state fast? That's why we have fast food. That's why we pop pills instead of get to the origin of of an issue. And I think personally, whether it's an emotional pain or a physical pain, it's simply just 
messaging. It's just there to say, hey, bitch, something's awry. I need you to pay attention. And the same way, if I have an ache in my knee, it doesn't serve me to go, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You're breaking down. I have to go, what's that? Oh, you need me to take it a little bit easier on the the workouts or, oh, you need me to search out some acupuncture. It's, It's messaging, but the same is true for emotions that come through. But we go, why am I feeling this way? Why do I, why, why, what? Instead of going like, what's the message? What's behind this? How did this show up for me? What's the message I'm supposed to be receiving here? Because so often we just, we berate ourselves instead of actually looking for for that learning. And what we don't realize is it prolongs our healing so much longer than is necessary. It kind of dawned on me when you were talking about sort of the difference between your approach and some of the traditional approaches is that yours is one of genuinely thriving in personal trust. Mm -hmm. And another is perpetually running from something that I don't want to be and I don't want to identify. And it's that squashing down of a part of you. And And I could not agree with you more about the positive affirmations. In fact, I teach something called progressive language, where instead of saying, I'm, uh, I am enough, we say, I'm exploring what it looks like to believe I'm enough, or I'm on the road to, or I'm open to learning what loving my body looks like. Because the, and, you know, as a hypnotherapist, I understand like the critical factor of the mind. Anytime you try to say those positive affirmations, the inner critic's like, fuck no, that's not what's hanging out in the subconscious. Get that shit out of here. Right. And, and so of course it doesn't stick. So working with that, that subconscious faculty of the mind. And part of that is the education piece, the learning piece and repetition and surrounding yourself with people who who are opening your mind to these sort of dialogues and conversations. One of the things that was hugely eye-opening for me with your work were, was two things. And I would love for you to speak about this a little bit. One is that alcohol is addictive to everybody, not just somebody who happens to have that particular cog. And then also that it's a carcinogen. And you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Can you talk about those two things? I I feel, I kind of was like, I'm a smart girl. How come I don't know this? Well, thanks to the alcohol industry who sexifies all things alcohol. But tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the fact that alcohol is addictive is something that I would not have known when I first started drinking. I mean, I I literally would have told you that alcohol, yeah, I mean, I guess people can get addicted to it if they're alcoholics. That would have been what I would have told you. And interestingly, the as you said earlier, when science evolves and when we have new information, we need to assimilate it into our our language, into our understanding. And science has evolved in this. We don't, we don't think of alcoholic anymore on a scientific perspective. Like it, it's not used. And the reason it's not used is because it's why it's indefinable, right? You nobody can define what an alcoholic is. In fact, you know, it used to be, and I don't know if this is still true, but if you would go to your doctor and say, Am I an alcoholic? They would be like, Well, only you can know. And it was a very, I, I don't think that's probably true anymore because the, the medical community has also evolved past the term alcoholic. But consider this for a minute. 
Now the medical community uses something called alcohol use disorder, which is a spectrum, and it has 11 questions. And two of those 11 questions, if you answer yes to just two of the 11, you have alcohol use disorder, okay? Two of the 11 are, do you need to drink more than you used to to get the same effect? Every drinker I know would say yes to that, every single one. And another one is, do you ever have, have you ever had a moment where you've drank and so much that you've really regretted it? Again, <laughs> I don't know any drinkers who wouldn't say yes to that. So, so by that definition, every drinker I know has alcohol use disorder. Right. And, and by the way, that's it. It's alcohol use disorder or not. And yes, it's a spectrum. You can have mild, moderate, severe, all that sort of stuff. But when we hold up this black and white paradigm of you're an alcoholic and then you can get addicted or you're not, and then you can't, not only is it medically and scientifically untrue, but it keeps people stuck. It keeps people stuck because the fear in admitting, if, if the first step is to admit that you have a deadly disease that is going to you know, ultimately cause you to have to be in meetings for the rest of your life, be kind of outside of, of society society, be in some, you know, if, if that's the first step, how far to what extent are you willing to go to delude yourself into believing that that's not true for you? And then of course, conveniently, they're like, oh yeah, well, that's just denial. Well, if we were having the conversation of would my life be a little bit better if I drank a bit less, nobody needs denial from that question. We only right. need denial from the question. Like it's a it's a self-predicating thing. Like we've created the fact of denial. We've created the rock bottom by not allowing questions earlier in the conversation, right? So yes, scientifically, alcohol is clearly, and no doctor will argue with this, addictive to all and any human beings, at least the ones with brains and blood and flesh and cells in the right amounts in the right circumstances over time. There's there's no debate. That's that's not up for debate. And, you know, in terms of it being a carcinogen, alcohol was declared a known carcinogen in 1988. <laughs> I'm so behind. <laughs> and I'm like, me too. I couldn't have told you that, right? Mm -hmm. I bet if we were to do just a fun survey, walk up to a dozen people on the street, how many people know that to be true? I bet the percentages are pretty low. Right, right. I remember being kind of rocked by reading your book and one of them and the dispelling all of these things about like, oh, it helps me relax. It helps me. And you're like, well, actually, this, da, da, da. and I was like, oh, shit. And um, and then it's like, so it's a carcinogen. And you're OK with that? Like. That's our method of recreation of like, let me just put poison in my body. And now I am not alcohol free. I definitely still drink, but I have found myself increasingly annoyed and aggravated by the sexification of it. Like I cannot stand now when I see it's wine o'clock and, you know, don't you want some cheese with your wine? And like, all just all this stupid mom stuff. And, and so I've been getting curious about that of like, what is that? Is that capitalism commercialism? Is that, is that somebody dictating a message to me that I don't like? Do I need to look deeper at my consumption? But again, here we are back at curiosity and also agency, right? Not somebody else putting a brand on you saying, do you want this chip or not? Oh, I'm taking it away because you were not infallible. Right. Right. And so so I'm I'm totally here with you on all of this. And I'm I'm curious if if people are listening and they're they've had that little inkling behind where they've kept 
saying, well, I'm not an alcoholic because I don't drink every day or I don't, you know, but what's really happening is there's a little like, knock, knock, hey, bitch, I need you to pay attention. You don't feel totally at peace with this usage. What's their first step? So first of all, I just want to address the fact that like, I don't think that this is a binary conversation. I don't think that this is about having to get sober and never drink again. In fact, I think that when you say something like I'm never drinking again, you will not know you're successful until after you're dead. So basically never, right? And back to the original thing we were talking about, about positive emotion. Usually if somebody's saying I'm never drinking again, that is not something that's engendering positive emotion inside the individual saying it. And so you're already starting off on the wrong foot. So I actually don't say that. I don't identify with being sober. I don't identify with like being in recovery. I say I drink as much as I want whenever I want. And I haven't wanted a drink in, you know, over eight years. And that's really honestly true for me. Like honestly true in the sense of like, huh, would it be a good idea? No, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, I still don't want it because every single time to the point about like, I am saying, if I have all the information, big if, if I have all the information, can I trust myself? And that is where I think we fall down in this conversation. And I think the best first step is to just say and admit to the fact that I probably know less about alcohol, which I'm putting in my body all the time than I do about the side effects of like Advil, right? Or about the side effects of any one of the pharmaceuticals that's advertised on TV, because when you have a pharmaceutical advertised on TV, a vast majority of the the commercial is about the side effects. (laughs) But we don't do that with alcohol. The only thing they have to say is drink responsibly. And I don't even know that they have to say that anymore. And, And that, by the way, puts all the blame and all the shame directly on the individual who can't drink an addictive substance, quote, responsibly. So the whole thing is kind of set up to, you know, to, to create this really toxic sort of conversation because the reality is we shouldn't be having the conversation. Do I have to stop drinking? Can I never drink again? I think a much more productive conversation is would I be a bit happier drinking less alcohol? And don't even right. say none, just say less because that's something that the brain can get behind. When we create what we have done in in the you know traditional like AA based recovery is we have created the first step is admitting you're an alcoholic and you're powerless. So if you're imagining somebody trying to climb up a staircase of steps, that first step is about 12 feet high. Maybe it's about 50 feet high. <laughs> yeah. So how many people are walking up to that first step and saying, "Oh well, well I'm going to just walk this other way." Right. Right. But what the first step was just like, Hey, I just want to be curious. I just, I feel like I owe it to myself as a conscious, aware human being to know a little bit more about this substance. If I'm going to keep doing it. What if that was the first step? Right. I, again, this is probably because of my religious trauma, but I have a very, very hard time with any type of ideology that tells you, you are powerless. You cannot be trusted. You are broken. You need saving all of, I get like, oh, wow, you are really misjudging the power of humanity and what we're actually capable of when we believe in our own divinity and our own personal empowerment. And we don't feel like it all has to come outside of ourselves. And again, and I agree with you that it's not a binary. And I do think that there are people who find unbelievable sources of strength in religion or in traditional therapies or AA. My big perspective, which I think you would concur, is you deserve your healing, period. So 
however that looks for you and however you find it, great. And if the options that you're searching out aren't working, you deserve to find other options. So with that, Annie Grace, where can people find more about you, books, and your alcohol experiment? Tell them all the things. Awesome. This has been so great. Thank you so much for having me on, Amy. Um, so the best place is the alcohol experiment. It's alcoholexperiment.com. It's a, th- a free 30-day challenge. Every day I educate you about the substance of alcohol. It is on an app off Facebook and it is just a great way to dip a toe. And you know, you don't even have to go through it with 30 days not drinking. It's just, you know, dipping a toe, understanding like what is the role of this in my life? How can I be more conscious and present to it? There's no expectation of never drinking again. There's no expectation of any any sort of change. It's it's just really information-based. So that's great. I've also written a bunch of books. They're available at Barnes & Noble and um, Amazon, This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment. Um, I have a podcast as well, This Naked Mind Podcast. So for podcast listeners. Awesome. And I'm sure everybody could just flip in whatever podcast app you are in right now. Make sure you find her pod and and have a listen. So thank you, Annie, so much for being here with us and for picking up the phone and being willing to take a break from s- shoveling snow. So have just a beautiful rest of your day, my friend. Thank you for being here. You too, Amy. Thank you so much for tuning in and hanging out with us. I am just so grateful for the work that she is doing in the world and that so many powerful women are doing in the world and just that we're we're shaking up we're shaking up things that we've always accepted as okay. And really having a disordered relationship with substances, alcohol in particular, is something that we're kind of were praised for. It's applauded in our society, so much so that if you don't drink, you feel like a social outcast. And that always just blew my mind of like, why would we be like, what do you mean you don't consume poison? (laughs) What do you mean? So I'm still working through some stuff in, in how I'm relating to alcohol. And I think truly the goal for all of us is about do I feel in control of my life? Do I feel powerful in my life? And is there anything alcohol including that, included that might be infringing on that? So I'd love to hear any thoughts that you might have. I hang out the most on Insta. You can find me under the handle Hey Amy Green Smith, and just find the meme for this particular episode and let me know your thoughts. And we will be right back in your feed with a brand new episode next week. So please remember you are enough. Your voice matters. So go out there and speak your bold-faced truth. Peace. Okay, wait, 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 just one more thing. So these podcasts, it turns out, don't actually rate and review themselves. So I would be over the moon if you would leave a review, rate the show, subscribe, and tell anyone you know who needs to start speaking the fuck up for themselves. And if you do, I will give you a mini pig. Just kidding, but I will be so very incredibly grateful. Okay, thank you. Bye.